What a joy to be with you this morning, uh, to be with some of you again, and to be with many of you for the first time. How greatly faithful the Lord has been uh, to this dear congregation over these last five years, particularly I have in mind. It's a joy to be able to bring God's Word to you today. Uh, I want us to begin, as I so often do, and for those of you who are from CHBC, maybe you've missed this, with a little historical note. On November the 4th, 1752, a 54-year-old New England woman, a widow, wrote to her son about some of the things that had happened just during the last few weeks. Quote, My dear son, I have heard something of the trials amongst you of late, and I was grieved till I had strength to give up the case to God and leave my burden there. And now I would tell you something of our trials. Your brother Samuel lay in prison 20 days. October the 15th, that's this date, so she's referring to something that happened 265 years ago this very day. The collectors came to our house and took me away to prison about nine o'clock in a dark, rainy night. Brothers Hill and Sabins were brought there the next night. We lay in prison 13 days and were then set at liberty by what means I know not. Whilst I was there, a great many people came to see me, and some said one thing and some said another. Oh, the innumerable snares and temptations that beset me, more than I ever thought of before. But oh, the condescension of heaven. Though I was bound when I was cast into this furnace, yet I was loosed and found Jesus in the midst of the furnace with me. Oh, then I could give up my name, estate, family, life, and breath freely to God. Now the prison looked like a palace to me. I could bless God for all the laughs and scoffs made at me. Oh, the love flowed out to all mankind. Then I could forgive as I would desire to be forgiven and love my neighbor as myself. Deacon Griswold was put in prison on the 8th of October. And yesterday, old brother Grover. And they are in pursuit of others, all of which calls for humiliation. The church has appointed the 13th of November to be spent in prayer and fasting on that account. I do remember my love to you and your wife and the dear children of God with you begging your prayers for us in such a day of trial. We are all in tolerable health, expecting to see you. These from your loving mother, Elizabeth Bacchus. Elizabeth was writing to her young son, Isaac, a young Baptist minister. And in colonial America, lands of Baptists were seized and sold in order to pay a tax to support the religious establishment of various churches. Congregational up in Massachusetts, Anglican here in Virginia. People were jailed because they would tell the gospel to someone. That happened here in these places. In short, people suffered for following Christ. When such suffering comes, great pressure comes on Christians to eliminate the more awkward and outstanding bits of their faith. Now, if you're a Christian, maybe you felt some of that pressure in your own life. Maybe you felt it in recent weeks from your family. It may be your unvarying church attendance, or your refusal to lie at work or your persistence in your faith in God, or your belief in marriage. But if you're a Christian here this morning, you have very likely experienced some kind of disapproval from others about your faith 
in Christ. And if that disapproval has grown and enlarged, you may very well have felt tempted to reconfigure your understanding of marriage or sexuality or of the Bible or of salvation through Christ alone in order to accommodate your situation at work or with your friends or family. You may find yourself retreating into the safety of the same commonly agreed upon nostrums. Yeah, do good. Stay safe. Uh, Why wait? You don't have to go to church to be a Christian after all, and you don't have to be a Christian to worship God. What do you do when circumstances are hard? When you start to feel sluggish in your faith? And you start to reconsider it all. Well, that was just the situation a group of Christians found themselves in a little over 1,900 years ago. And the New Testament letter to the Hebrews was the answer to it. So this morning, we read in the book of Hebrews, beginning with chapter 5, verse 11. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again from the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instructions about baptisms and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So this morning, we want to look at the present problems they faced there in chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 3, and then at the terrible tragedy contemplated there in verses 4 to 8, and then finally the real hope held out there in chapter 6, verses 9 to 12. So problems, tragedy, and hope. And in the process, maybe some of your problems will be solved. And a great tragedy for you avoided. And maybe you will leave this morning knowing what it means to have hope in Christ. And you'll have that hope. That's my prayer. What better way to show thanks to God 
for five years of Garrett Kell's ministry here than to find renewed hope in Christ or to find it for the first time. First, let's look at their problems here. Chapter 5, verse 11. The, the writer uses two images to convey what these problems are. The main image is one of teaching, and then the secondary one is of food. So let's look at the main image first, this elementary teaching he talks about. Verse 11, chapter 5, verse 11. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though, by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. Okay, so what is it that he has a lot to say about? He says there in verse 11, we have much to say about this. Well, what's the this? Well, I think it's Jesus' high priesthood he's just been talking about, and he picks this up after talking about it. He'll pick it up again. But the problem is, he says here, you are slow to learn. It's literally dull in the hearing. Now, of course, in the earlier chapters, we see what happens when hearing the Word of God is not accompanied with faith in the Word of God. Such faithless hearing brings no benefit. It trains us in indifference. You realize that indifference to God's Word is really nothing other than just indifference to God Himself. That's the beginning of falling away. It was for the Israelites who fell in the desert that the writer talks about earlier in Hebrews in chapters 3 and 4. You see, by now these, these Christians ought to have been spending their time teaching others the truth. And instead, he says here in verse 12, they needed someone to teach them the elementary truths. It's as if somebody still needed to instruct them in their ABCs. He picks up the theme again in chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. So his basic exhortation here is twofold. It's like the exhortation to repent and believe, to turn and trust. It has two sides. Leave the elementary teachings, he says here in verse 1. Not leave in the sense of forsake them, uh, abandon them, deny them, but leave in the sense of having fully digested them and now moving on to further understand the Christian faith, the Christian gospel, and what its implications are. So this is the second half of the exhortation. So there in verse 1 he says, let us go on to maturity. So you, you leave the elementary and you go on to the maturity. And such maturity or completeness mirrors what Jesus did in his life. If you look up in chapter 5, verse 9, Jesus went through his suffering. He was mature, complete for his purpose. The, the idea the writer is conveying is not that these Christians needed uh, a gentle refresher course, but it was a, a much more jarring idea. The image here is of a frustrating, stunted reality which would be like having to lay the building's foundation a second time. So a lot of you will have noticed on Capitol Hill over the last few years, uh, they've rebuilt the dome. Uh, they put a big thing over it, and they worked from inside and took things apart and replaced many parts of it. They cleaned it. They refurbished it. They took damaged bits and put new ones inside. Uh, they replaced bolts. They would have displays of these old corroded iron bolts from 1860 that had never been changed 
and then they would show you the new kind of bolt they were putting in. Well, this seems to be the most radical, the most extreme, the most desperate measures is what's being pictured here. It's not what we just saw happening there. What he's talking about here with this image is laying again its foundations. Now, even with everything they just did to the dome, they didn't do that. They didn't take the entire building apart and then redo its foundations. But that's the frustrating image the writer here uses about what these Christians are like in the way they are responding or failing to understand or failing to take on board the truth that's been taught them. Uh, Surely it would be better just to go to a new site than to undo all that has been done and remove the superstructure and the foundations and resituate the earth and begin again. Maybe in the most extreme case, you could do it, but it's, it's odd to the point of being almost unheard of. So that's the, the image the author is using here. It's this image of a hugely frustrating, perhaps impossible task to get across his point here in chapter 6, verse 1. And if you look at this list he lays out here in verses 1 and 2, it's a list of three pairs. Repentance and faith, washings and laying on of hands, resurrection and judgment. And you know, these were all things that the Pharisees taught in the first century. They were typical Pharisaic Jewish teachings. These things were all assumed for a belief in Christ. I mean, they weren't false. They were elementary things. The the kindergarten that began to teach about repentance and faith and holiness and judgment, and of, you see, each one of those, consider for a moment repentance from acts that lead to death. Well, they certainly believed in this. And of faith in God, well, that's clearly there in the Old Testament. Instruction about baptisms or, or washings, uh, you can tell that the plural there means this isn't talking about baptism in the New Testament sense. I think that's why it's better when your translation puts washings there. And we know that Jesus certainly had run-ins with the Pharisees over those kind of ceremonial washings. Those were matters of dispute. And then the laying on of hands, which we know they practiced. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, which the Pharisees were famous for believing in. So all of this pre-Christian doctrine that now seemed attractive to these young Christians wasn't false it was simply immature. Devoid of Christ, it was incomplete. Now, why would they return to that? Why try to lay down the fundamental truths upon which we understand who Christ is again and at the expense of believing Christ to be who he said he was? Well, in this passage, the writer not only uses the idea of their education seeming elementary, but also of their taste being immature. Look there in the middle of chapter 5 at verse 12, the second half of verse 12. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Again, as with the previous image, these Christians should have been full-grown, complete. It's the same word used up there in verse 9 about Jesus' suffering that makes him perfect or complete in terms of being a a sympathetic and an effective high priest. These Christians that Hebrews is written to should have understood the gospel well instead of being stymied by such basic questions. 
And, and the image he uses here about them still needing milk is not the, the frustrating image of laying again the foundation. This is a humorous image. I mean, imagine us all going downstairs for a potluck lunch afterwards. And those of you with uh, young kids, let's say, is, is your youngest still using a bottle? Okay. So Garrett going up and grabbing the bottle of milk and starting to take that for his lunch. Now, we would, we would laugh at that. We would find that humorous. But it's, it's supposed to be incongruous. It's, that's the image he's bringing up here. It's not, it's not wrong. It's just, it's just weird. It's like, it's not normal. You know, it, it's not what you should be doing at your age spiritually. Well, friend, that's the image they're bringing up. What kind of immaturity is your problem? How long have you known the Lord? Let's say you've been a a member of a church or in Christ for 30 years. Well, have you been leading people to Christ? Have you been discipling people? Have people around you come to better understand Jesus because of what you've said and, and how you've lived? Are there other people sitting here this morning in Christ or who have grown in Christ because God has used you in their lives? There's a famous question that comes up every few years. Are you better off now than you were four years ago? Well, let me ask that of you spiritually. Are you better off now than you were five years ago? When Garrett came here, are you more mature spiritually than you were five years ago? Do you hunger more for God's glory now than you did five years ago? If the you of five years ago came to sit down and have a chat with the you of today, how would the two of you get on? Would the you of today have learned anything in the last five years? Would the you of five years ago be impressed, maybe even surprised, pleased at the changes the Holy Spirit of God has worked among you? Would such a meeting be encouraging to you? Or would it be embarrassing? Friends, I think in our following Christ, we want to to move from being a kind of net importer of understanding doctrine and obedience as we grow in Christ to becoming a kind of net exporter, still entirely dependent on God's grace, but where what we spend our weeks doing, whether we're full-time in ministry or whether we do some other job or have some other role in life, but we should be those people who are constantly giving out, teaching others. Uh, that's what we want to see in our churches. We want to see a culture of evangelism and discipling. And I praise God for all the evidence I've heard of and seen of that among you. And pray that will only continue to flourish. So these problems were theirs. Problems of dullness in learning God's truth and of immaturity in the Christian life. Are they your problems? He brings all of this up because he feels bound to warn them of a second thing, a terrible tragedy. The writer warns of a state in which there could be no repentance. Look there in chapter 6, verse 4, and you heard me correctly. That's what he talks about, a state in which there could be no repentance. Chapter 6, verse 4, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. 
So who are those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age? Well, that that list seems clearly at least to describe someone who considers themselves a Christian. At most, someone who, in fact, is a Christian. Some people are quick to say that this couldn't be a real category because we know that people who are truly Christians don't lose their salvation. And while I agree the Bible is very clear in teaching that Jesus will lose none of his sheep and that God's election of us in salvation is unconditional, not based upon us at all, that we are saved by grace alone, all of that, I'm not persuaded that that means this category isn't a real category, even if it is empty. There are a lot of examples of real warnings in the Bible that don't come to fruition. You can find those in a number of places. This afternoon you could read Mark 13. You read Acts 27. I want to be careful not to mute the severity of this warning. The language about enlightened there in verse 4 was language used about those who had received the light, as he puts it later in chapter 10. Light is a frequent image for the kingdom of God in the New Testament. Paul in Colossians 1.12 said to the Colossian Christians, that he was giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. It is those who have been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift. And the fact is that this is a gift, which is the nature of our salvation, that is heavenly, coming from God. And that it is the heavenly gift all leads us to understand that this too is meant of salvation. And then he uses this phrase, sharing in the Holy Spirit. That seems to be describing a Christian. Would wicked unbelievers living in spiritual darkness be said to share in the Holy Spirit? The writer has already spoken in chapter 3 about sharing in the heavenly calling, sharing in Christ. So too, we Christians are those who share in the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who has spoken to us in Scripture. It's the Holy Spirit who has gifted His church. It's the Holy Spirit that we share together as Christians. I mean, just think about that. It's strange, isn't it? I come in here, and I don't even know some of you, and yet you and I, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you and I literally share the same spirit. Ooh, kind of spooky, isn't it? I mean, it's just, but you know, it's this amazing reality that we experience, that we step into when we truly are converted, when we are born again, when we become Christians. So having tasted the goodness of the Word of God, Uh, would seem most clearly to be a reference to tasting God's creative power when we're born again, as does having tasted the powers of the coming age. Uh, The writer later refers to the fact that Christians are looking for the city that is to come. So we're the people who live now in light of then, in, in light of what's coming. So we're the ones, he says here, who have tasted in the powers of the coming age. Okay, so that's who he's talking about. Now, if such people, he says, fall away, It's a word he uses in verse 6. Then he says, it is impossible, literally, to again renew. So like we just considered a few moments ago, we, we don't rebuild a building's foundations. You may shore them up, but you don't dig them out and start it all over again, unless you're just going to have a whole different building. Why? Well, because those who have fallen away have not just gone AWOL, they have become traitors. 
as the writer puts it here in verse 6, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again. They are subjecting him to public disgrace. Literally, they are, they are making a public shame of Jesus as those people who bear Jesus' name. Having publicly owned him in baptism, they are now scorning him and rejecting him. For such, he says, there is no longer a possibility of repentance. That has been done. If that hasn't worked, what will? Friends, these are warning signs set up for our safety. So we are to adhere to them. Now, some of you may be just perverse enough to be thinking, but if no one truly saved person is going to be lost, why even write a warning like this? And my only response is, don't try to be wiser than God's word. A number of times in God's word, Jesus told us about things that would never happen in order to admonish us. So in Matthew chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus told his disciples, quote, whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my father in heaven. Now, when Jesus said that, he knew who was his. He knew who would disown him. But he still gave them that warning. It was Jesus himself who said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 23, and you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. Well, he said that to show them the importance and the special appropriateness of repentance at his coming, and therefore the terrible strangeness of their not repenting at his coming. Another example is in Jesus' teaching on the difficulties for his disciples in the days before the end of the world. Matthew 24, verse 24. For false Christ and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. Now you may think, but if we know that we'll be safe to the end, then doesn't that take away any responsibility we have between now and then? No, not at all. In the Bible, we find God's sovereignty and human responsibility going hand in hand. So if later this afternoon you go to Acts chapter 27 and you look at that account there of the story of Paul on the ship going to Rome and a terrible storm happens, and Paul recounts then that an angel of God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you all the lives of those who sail with you. So this terrible storm was happening And yet God gave Paul an assurance that he and all those with him would survive. Okay, you're Paul. You get that assurance. So then you think, ah, well, then it clearly doesn't matter what I do. God is sovereign. I will now proceed to nap for three days. Well, that's not what happens. That that divine assurance didn't short-circuit Paul's activity at all. It didn't make him an irresponsible, passive blob. No, if you read the rest of the story in Acts 27, you find Paul is very active in helping to make what God had assured to him come to pass. It's just like us with the Great Commission. We know from Revelation 5 and Revelation 7 that it works. There are people of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. There's no danger that God's, God's commission will not be fulfilled. But we still have the Great Commission, so we work all the harder to fulfill it, being confident it will be fulfilled. Friends, this is typical of the Bible. 
Paul in Romans 9 talks of God's electing one and not another. And then in chapter 10, he pleads for the church to send out preachers. Because without preachers of the message of Christ, no one will be saved. This is what you find in the Bible. An unmuted Romans 9 and an unmuted Romans 10. So reread these verses. Since you have already been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God, tasted the powers of the coming age, it is impossible to find anything stronger. This is it. Kind of like when someone is told by their doctor, we've done everything we can. Here's the last thing we can really do. It's like what we read a little bit later in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. He's saying if this effectual, powerful sacrifice of Christ does not cleanse us, what will? To make this a bit clearer, the writer gives us a brief illustration about worthless fruit. You look there in chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. This is really his explanation of what he's just said. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. So our fate is related to our fruit. In both cases here, you have land, and it is presumed rain. Both pieces of land, we guess, are farmed. In both cases, things begin to grow up. Looks promising in both cases. But wait, in one, you have a useful crop, and in the other, only worthless thorns and thistles. The one receives the blessing of God, the other his final burning curse. The writer by this clear image is saying that there are only two options. Either you mature or you apostatize. Either you mature or you apostatize. You can be useful or worthless, to use his words. Only two options. You can be blessed or you can be cursed. You can fall away from God's grace down, down, down literally to hell. Or you can press on to ever-increasing maturity. But anything else is an illusion. I thank God for how much Delray Baptist Church is making it clear that nominal Christianity is no Christianity. You either, struggling hard with sin, continue to mature in your love of Christ, or you are falling away from Him with no fruit. Friends, you realize that God has put this here in the book of Hebrews in part to keep you, Christian, from falling away. If you're here this morning as a Christian, this passage is a warning to you. He shows you how terrible it would be to fall away from him. More terrible than any physical fall from whatever great height would be. 
And as a child of God, you listen to this warning of God, and so you don't fall away. But the warning is as true as the warnings we read on bottles of pills that we never abuse or on an airplane door in mid-flight that we never turn the handle while we're up in the air. Those warnings are still true, and they help us. They guide us. The fear drives us to closer dependence on our protecting Heavenly Father. And two, I think that the Holy Spirit has put this there to grow our thankfulness to God for His preservation of us. You know, that we would by our own fallen natures be drawn to sin and we'd be drawn back into it finally and fully and our ruin from it would be entire. But God, in His love, keeps us from that. Hold on then and trust, believer, and praise God for His goodnesses to us. The writer paints a picture with his pen of of a terrible place, a place of no repentance, a place marked by worthless lives. Avoid any such place, he's saying to them. And he says it to us as well. This is a terrible tragedy. Realize the greatness of the blessings you have in Christ. Do not forsake them. Now, I'm sure that this most clearly severe image, that of of land, which is either blessed or cursed, left them with a question. Not so much, was I one kind of land once and then turned into another kind of land? Was I good land that went bad? But I think the question it left them with was, what evidence over time am I producing? What kind of land am I? In verse 9, he goes on to answer this question. So we turn to the third section about real hope. And here in this last verse in our passage this morning, he gives them some signs of hope. Even though, verse 9, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. That dear friends in verse 9 are beloved in the ESV is the most tender point really in this whole letter. It is the only time in this letter that he speaks to them like that. And it's not surprising that it's just after he had been the most harsh. He is then speaking of a kind of falling away after which it is impossible to repent. He expresses that he didn't mean to sound as if he knew they were damned. No, he says that's, that's not the case at all. Dull and immature, yes. Uh, Fallen away and damned, no. He wasn't saying that. He didn't mean to go that far. He says he was confident of better things in their case. Things, he says, that accompany salvation. And how could he have that kind of confidence? Well, because of their work and love that they'd shown in helping God's people. So even if they were asking some strange questions in terms of theology, their lives seemed to be lives of commitment toward Jesus Christ and toward his church. Still, they should make sure their hope. Look at verse 11, chapter 6, verse 11. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. So this diligence in verse 11 is the antidote to the dullness, their, their slowness to learn up in chapter 5, verse 11. They were to be earnest to give themselves to the same high purpose to the very end, not wavering with this or that difficult circumstance of persecution or of ridicule. 
And by showing the same diligence, they would hope, make their hope in Christ certain. And this would be the fruitful life that would distinguish them from a life that produced nothing but spiritually useless thorns and thistles. So he says here in chapter 6, verse 12, we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Again, remembering the Israelites in the wilderness, he didn't want them to give up on their hope in Christ or to give up along the way out of exhaustion or to give in to sin. He wanted them to continue diligently, not becoming lazy, but he says here, imitating those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. I love that last phrase. I've been loving it my quiet times this week. You know, in verse 12, people sometimes hear this statement about inheriting what has been promised through faith and patience. And they think that all this talk about perseverance is really another way to sneak in work salvation. That is the idea that we save ourselves by how we live. But that's not what he's saying at all. If you look at the last part of verse 12, you don't find that your faith and patience are are paid for, that you are given wages in return for them. Rather, faith and patience lead you to what someone else, as it says here, promised to what someone else has earned and obtained, to what someone else gives us freely as a gift, though he himself worked for it and earned it, as we see back in earlier in chapter 5. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is the, the weird thing about Christianity you need to understand. Maybe you've come today because you have a Christian friend in your neighborhood or at work who you like their life. And that's a good thing. But you shouldn't misunderstand that Christianity is fundamentally about living a good life. Christianity is about fundamentally realizing that none of us lead good enough lives. And because God is unremittingly always good, our only hope is in the goodness of the life of Jesus Christ. God sent his only son, Jesus, to live a life of perfect goodness and righteousness, trust, doing the right thing, always relying on God as he should, fully and completely. So death had no claim on him. He never needed to die. But he did die. Why did he die? Because he had sinned. No, he never sinned. Why did he die? Because we have sinned. And he was taking what we have deserved. So friend, if you will turn and trust in him, then that sacrifice that Christ made was for you. And it's enough. You can tell because God raised him from the dead for our justification. He ascended to heaven. He presented his sacrifice to his heavenly Father who accepted it. He calls us all now to turn from our sins and trust in him. Friend, if you want to know more about that, just ask the people who are around you. See Garrett or John after the service today. Do you understand what I'm saying here from Hebrews? Sometimes we think that the necessity of perseverance in faith equaled salvation by works but nothing could be further from the truth just as it was with the children of israel taking the promised land the effects of their actions were all out of proportion to their own abilities because the taking of the land was not really the effect of their actions alone even of their actions primarily but it was god's taking up and using their actions just like God used David's stone to slay Goliath. David didn't slay Goliath by himself. 
Or Peter's sermon in Acts 10 to convert Cornelius. God used Peter's sermon. So God took up and used the Israelites in order to fulfill his promises to them. And so God calls into being in us faith and patience so that we believe and persevere. And without this belief and perseverance, we will not inherit what has been promised. But with this faith and patience, we will. But not fundamentally because we have persevered or in a way that our perseverance deserves this. But because our great God has decided to glorify himself this way in calling us to trust him over time for a gift that he will give us by his grace. Friends, when we're in situations that are difficult, you can make your calling and election sure by having people around who know you and encourage you and exhort you with honesty and diligence. That's what church membership is all about. That's why Garrett and Carrie have given their last five years to being here. Because that's the only way God's people will make it home. Have people around you that you will listen to. When you think the problem is everybody else, I promise you, the problem is not everybody else. You have got to open your ears. Put yourself around good and godly people. You need a church. You need a pastor. You need a teacher of God's word that you can trust. You need a church that you can be active in. Friends that you can honestly let get to know you. And on this morning, where we recount and give thanks to God for five years of the Kells here at Delray, we thank God for how he has used you, brother, and your teaching and your leadership to bring about a transformation of this congregation because you have been faithful in teaching his word and he is faithful to use his word. These Christians had signs of hope in their lives, but by continuing on, they would make that hope certain. This is what real hope was like for them. And this is what real hope is like for us today. So that's their story. Their immaturity were real. They needed to turn it around. A a terrible tragedy seemed to loom as if they would throw away the unparalleled benefits they had in Christ. Their desperate need was to have a very real hope made sure through diligence, patience, and faith. And for this, they needed others to exhort and encourage them. It's a very real problem, isn't it? It wasn't just then. It has been from then till now for all of us who are on the journey. Christian friend, if if you are turned in on yourself, looking for something better, discouraged, impatient, you don't have to be. Look to Christ. Look to those who've gone before. Read the Bible, pray, read biographies, get involved in loving and teaching others. And like Jesus, don't give up. Don't give up. A number of years ago, somebody asked Gary and Evelyn Harthcock about giving up. Gary and Evelyn were 79 and 78, respectively. They were workers with the Southern Baptist International Mission Board, and they worked among Buddhist monks in Asia. And they asked 
they were asked about retirement. And they responded that as long as the devil was at work, they would be. I quote, he's still doing his dirty work, they said. When the devil retires, we will. How many stories of perseverance could I recount to you? How often have I recounted stories of Adoniram Judson or Lottie Moon or or William Borden? You remember other stories of faithfulness despite persecution that I'm sure Garrett has shared with you. And what about you? What is God calling you to? What are you being called to endure in your diligent and patient trusting of him through every day of your life? Isaac Bacchus, whose mother Elizabeth's letter we began with this morning, himself had his fill of suffering in this life as he worked for religious freedom in the new American Constitution and then tried to get the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to stop penalizing minority religious groups. Bacchus had occasion to reflect on how we are called to handle the difficulties and challenges of life in this fallen world. He made four observations. Number one, that manifold trials attend God's people in this world. Number two, That these are sent because we have need of them to kill pride, to cure us of worldly mindedness and love to the creature, to rouse us from our sloth, to quicken our regard to eternal things. Three, that these temptations and sorrows continue but for a short season. And four, that in the midst of them, God gives his saints springs of great joy. It's the way God works always, isn't it? He'll do something that could only be explained by him. He puts you in misery sometimes to show the joy that you could only be finding in him and so bring him glory. His own mother had earlier years found that even in jail. Remember what she said in that letter? She said, though I was bound when I was cast into the furnace, yet I was loosed and found Jesus in the midst of the furnace with me, Oh, then I could give up my name, estate, family, life, and breath freely to God. Now the prison looked like a palace to me. I could bless God for all laughs and scoffs made at me. Oh, the love flowed out to all mankind. Then I could forgive as I would desire to be forgiven and love my neighbor as myself. Friends, have you found this to be true? Can you have joy when you have the Christ you say you love? but the other circumstances that you do love taken from you? What are the wildernesses that you must survive? The obstacles that you must surmount? The dangers to your faithful following of Christ that you must outlast? The jails that he has given you to become palaces because the presence of Christ is in them with you? Should persecution, rage, and flames still trust in thy Redeemer's name? In fiery trials thou shalt see that as thy days thy strength shall be. When called to bear the weighty cross of sore affliction, pain, or loss, or deep distress, or poverty, still as thy days thy strength shall be. When ghastly death appears in view, Christ's presence shall thy fears subdue. He comes to set thy spirit free. And as thy days, thy strength shall be. It's true for all of God's people, even pastors. Garrett, I praise God for the five years that he's given you. 
And I pray that he will continue to give you strength for all the days he calls you to serve him here. 